Radio Parallax has no evidence that that song was written by or about Donald Trump. Although we have observed that it appears at times he does take the attitude that all he seems to need is a beautiful girl. We're as intrigued as you are, dear listener, to find out that the feds have now raided Michael Cohn's office. We can't wait to see where that's going to lead, but... As to where we are now, I think we can hardly do better than to quote from Mark Evanier's blog, News From Me. This is the only blog regularly consulted by Radio Parallax. It's quite good. But here's how Mark summarized it. Porn star Stormy Daniels says she and Donald Trump had an affair. Donald Trump says they did not. Just before the 2016 election, she accepted $130,000 from Trump's attorney, Michael Cohn, to deny that the alleged affair ever happened. After that, she sometimes denied it and sometimes did not. More recently, she has said they did have an affair, and she is suing to have the agreement declared void so she can talk about it all she wants. Cohen is suing her for violating the agreement. The $130,000 was put up by Cohn, who mortgaged his home to raise it because he cared about his client Trump, who in turn says he did not know anything about this. Cohn was not reimbursed for this amount by Trump or the Trump campaign. Various other sums paid to him, which seemed to total around $130,000, were not for that purpose. Trump also says he knew nothing about this. The agreement was between a, quote, David Dennison, unquote, and a, quote, Peggy Peterson, unquote. And a side letter identified David Dennison as Donald Trump and Peggy Peterson as Stephanie Clifford, which is the real name of Stormy Daniels. The use of aliases was to outsmart anyone who might get a hold of a copy of the agreement, but not a copy of the side letter, which in some cases was probably in the same envelope. Mark goes on, among the terms of the agreement is a section wherein Cohn and his client, that would be the client who says he knew nothing about the agreement, require the lady to turn over any evidence she might possess of this affair, which they say never occurred. The lawyer for Ms. Peterson slash Clifford slash Daniels insists the agreement between her and Mr. Trump slash Dennison is invalid because the latter never signed it. Trump and Cohn are insisting it is valid, even though Trump never signed it and did not know of its existence. Cohn insists the agreement is valid because he is Trump's attorney and therefore can sign for his client and therefore can sign for his client and commit him to his side of the agreement, which he didn't know about. Meanwhile, 
Cohn's own lawyer, David Schwartz, says that when Cohn drew up the agreement and forked over the $130,000, he, Cohn, was acting as a friend, not as Trump's lawyer. Trump says that if anyone has any questions about the matter, they should take them up with his lawyer, Michael Cohn. Cohn is still Trump's attorney, even though, if we believe Trump's side of it, his trusted attorney went behind his back to enter into an extremely embarrassing agreement with a porn star to cover up an affair which never happened. The lady's lawyer, Michael Avenatti, wants the whole matter settled in open court. Trump's lawyer, question mark, Michael Cohn, wants it settled in a closed-door arbitration because his client, question mark, is completely innocent. And when you're found innocent, it's always better to have that happen in secret. Mark Evanier asks, do I have this right? As far as we can tell, that's that's an excellent summary, Mark. All right, we want to take our usual whack here at uh, at uh, Silicon Valley and tech and AI and Facebook and all this huge Cambridge Analytica fiasco unfolding before our very eyes. And we do note that Radio Parallax has been annexed into Silicon Valley. We are currently recording this program from a location which is now considered well within the boundaries of that area. Unlike most of the tech boosters which one finds in Silicon Valley, we take a look at the following news story and, um, well, let's just say don't look at it in in a completely positive way. The story is that Amazon has secured a patent for a new delivery drone that can respond to human gestures. The patent suggests that this drone could adjust its behavior depending upon a person's gestures, including frantically waving arms, pointing, and even a shooing mode. What about giving it the finger? Well, we don't know. Of course, I do know that it says even a shooing motion. That's as opposed to a shooting motion. (laughs) I would suggest that if Amazon is, is intending to deliver any drones over my backyard, they better be prepared for a shooting motion. They're also planning for this drone to be able to release the package it's transporting to change its flight path or flying speed and, and this is the best part, ask humans a question. If you think this is a good idea, if you think this is a good idea, dear listener, You're nuts! Anyway, segueing off that, we would note that according to the New York Times, which some people think is the authoritative paper of America, a view not shared by Radio Parallax, writer Kevin Roos said, Silicon Valley is over. Adding, or so say the tech world's best and brightest, fed up with the exorbitant cost of living, the constant congestion, and the left-wing echo chamber... Silicon Valley's luminaries are increasingly looking enviously at other parts of the country and pondering an exodus. Billionaire Facebook board member Peter Thiel is decamping to Los Angeles to escape what he calls San Francisco's toxic progressive orthodoxy. Google and Facebook have opened outposts in such cities as Boston and Boulder, and a recent bus trip through Ohio, Michigan, and Indiana 
And on a recent bus trip to Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, tech venture capitalists clearly got a got the heartland bug. They gawked at the availability of cheap homes and marveled how even old-time manufacturing cities now offer a convincing simulacrum of coastal life, complete with artisanal soap stores and farm-to-table restaurants. All I can say to this is, hello, you can't put millions of people in Silicon Valley. Well, you can, but you will destroy the environment if you try. We have covered on this program the, uh, the machinations of astroturf groups such as Yimby being financed by tech giants and real estate developers to, uh, to change all these restrictive laws that don't allow you to build high-density housing everywhere you want to. And they have found some shills in the state legislature like State Senator Scott the Wiener, I'm, I'm, excuse me, Scott Wiener, uh, Wiener's working hard to require cities to allow more apartment buildings and condominiums within a half mile of rail stations and a quarter mile of bus stops with frequent service. The Bay Area News Group reports that this bill, sponsored by a growing coalition of YIMBY, Yes in My Backyard, activist groups, covers large swaths of Oakland, San Francisco, Berkeley, and Los Angeles. Again, YIMBY, an astroturf group bought and paid for by wealthy interests to serve their interests. You know, many years ago in this program, we did a satire, a comedy, where we endorsed a group called Yimby at the time. Our premise, Yimby would hire out if you wanted to send a bunch of people down to a city council meeting and, and lobby for, say, a rendering plant in your neighborhood or something that would like, you know, recycled tires, because who doesn't want belching smokestacks right next to where they live? Little did we know that uh, <laughs> reality would transcend our satire. Yeah, be careful what you satire. It, it, it might come true. You know, we probably should make a list of things that we've satirized that have come true. We also did one satirical bit years ago about how a way to deal with school shooting was to market bulletproof backpacks. Again, reality has caught up to that and exceeded it. Anyway, um, I do need to bag on the tech industry just a little bit because they're so freaking insufferable. We again would remind you that if nothing else comes good out of the HBO program Silicon Valley, the fact that Silicon Valley companies are telling their employees to stop saying things like we're making the world a better place, that alone uh, recommends the program to you. The trouble is, as, as is so often the case in the world, uh, when you repeat that sort of nonsense over and over again, people start to believe it. And this is not to say that the tech industry has not generated all sorts of things that make our lives better. They have. But its downside is now becoming readily apparent. Thank God. We're, we're pleased to see that we don't seem to be a lonely voice uh, on this subject uh, anymore. Here's an item that's worth dredging up and kicking around a little bit. Uh, I have the East Bay Times in my hand, Monday, April 9th issue, page 1. Article about how Valley firms are going remote. And they're showing how, in this picture, there's a yoga class, a corporate yoga class in San Francisco, where the yoga apparently is being directed from Portland, Oregon, and Hawaii. 
This brings up the fact that, yes, you can do things remotely. You can do computer-related tech things remotely. A friend of this program was at one point living in Hawaii and doing work remotely for Silicon Valley firms until somebody in Silicon Valley, it might have been Carly Fiorina, I'm not sure, Any, uh, maybe, I don't know, someone, some female executive, I believe it was, in Silicon Valley, decided that if they cracked the whip and got their people in the building where they could supervise them, they could get more work out of them than they were getting out of them when they were working remotely from home. This became the new way of conducting business. So when these tech companies bitch about how tough it is for them because housing prices are so high and traffic is so congested, I would just say, well, whose fault is that? You guys promised us not so long ago that you could relieve traffic congestion by having your people work at home. Then you changed your mind because it was better for your bottom line not to do it that way. Can you tell I don't have a lot of sympathy for the arguments being served up by these people? All right, we like to do on occasion good news items. Let's do a couple of good news items related to tech. The first is that Dianne Feinstein is continuing to block a bill that would have made it easier to get self-driving cars out on California streets. This battle has pitted the 25-year incumbent, Feinstein, against one of the most powerful industries in her state at a time when she's facing her most vigorous election challenge in years. We're standing with Feinstein on this. But, uh, now that it's clear enough that uh, driverless cars are killing people, it, it would be time to step back a minute and see how fast we want to move in this direction. We're also pleased to note that the Theranos founder, Elizabeth Holmes, has been slapped with an SEC fine for $500,000 for her committing massive fraud in lying about what her technology could deliver. We expressed skepticism on this program years ago that you could do all these marvelous things with a drop of blood rather than a proper blood sample. Theranos claimed it could. They lied. Personally, we'd like to see Elizabeth Holmes thrown in the slammer for a while. And you know, I've got in my right hand a... <laughs> sound like Karnak. Here in my right hand, I hold an article from the Independent titled How Silicon Valley Spooks and the Super-Rich con Took Control of the 21st Century. But I don't, feel like, I don't feel like taking the plunge into this today. We're going to put this on hold and return to it in some future installment of this program. We'd highly recommend it to you if you want to check that out. This came from the April 5th edition of The Independent and can be found online. Let's instead lighten things a little bit here by doing some of the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for manual transmissions, at least at least in Domino's delivery trucks, with the news that two Florida boys, age 12 and 14, tried to steal a Domino's truck while the driver was delivering the pizza. They were foiled by their lack of stick shift experience. 
recounted driver Javier Ortez. When they go back to get in first gear, they cannot drive. It was, on the other hand, a bad week recently for closing the barn door after the horses are out with the news that Rick Santorum, former Republican senator who's apparently now a CNN analyst, I'm not sure what they're having him analyze over at CNN, but he has advised folks that rather than campaigning for phony gun laws, as he calls them, activist teens would be better off taking CPR classes to help save their fellow students after they've been shot. You know, some years back when we consulted our own political analyst, uh, Jerry Polakoff, very sharp guy, who lives in Pennsylvania, and we, we mentioned Rick Santorum and his chances of re- obtaining the Republican nomination for, for president, Jerry said he's got about as much chance as a ham sandwich. To which we would add, you know, normally Jerry's a pretty astute political observer, but in this case, he really overestimated Santorum's chances. And we mentioned here recently how our satire has been transcended by reality when we talked about things like bulletproof school uniforms. Well, we'd have to say it was an ugly week for the students of America with the news. (laughs) We're in Pennsylvania again. With the news that five-gallon buckets of river stones have been placed in every classroom in a Pennsylvania school district for students to throw at active shooters. Yes, Blue Mountain School District Superintendent David Helsel chose Riverstones in particular because, quote, they're the right size for hands, unquote. Aspiring school shooters are now on notice, Helsel said, that they will face a classroom full of students armed with rocks, and they will be stoned. Well, if anybody's stoned in this particular story, we suggest that it is probably Superintendent David Helsel who is laboring under the idea that you can take a rock to a gunfight. And here's an item which, frankly, we don't know whether it's good or whether it's bad or whether it's even ugly, but apparently Roseanne Barr has a hit on her hands. She's done an ABC TV reboot of her popular sitcom from the 1990s. It drew 18 million viewers for its premiere episode, which is the largest audience for any network sitcom in the last four years. In this show, Roseanne is a working-class President Trump supporter who trades barbs with her liberal sister, Jackie. Now, here's the part we didn't know. Apparently, the titular character of this new series has morphed, like Barr herself, into a genuine supporter of President Trump, who, she explains in the program, talked about jobs and promised to shake things up. The conservative Washington Times is saying that the show's instant popularity holds a lesson for TV producers. In an editorial, they noted that rather than cater solely to coastal elites, maybe they might make a few shows for the deplorables in flyover country, working-class people who elected a president that Hollywood doesn't approve of. Yes, apparently, according to Esquire.com, Roseanne Barr can now be found spouting off on Twitter, calling Clinton aide Huma Abedin a filthy Nazi whore. Wow and peddling lunatic theories from the far-right fever swamps. This week, she tweeted that Trump had freed so many children held in bondage to pimps. This is a claim that stems from the Pizzagate conspiracy theory that leading Democrats, including Hillary Clinton, are running a global pedophile ring. Then again, when the political leanings of Roseanne Barr become important, 
or seemingly become important, it's, aren't we in some kind of trouble? All right, we, we really like doing these. Let's just do a couple more. Um, from the good week side, we have this. It's apparently a good week for 10-mile runs with the news that the Army has said that it may extend basic training by two weeks. This is to cope with an influx of flabby, unfit recruits. Officials say the recruits are so out of shape and so undisciplined that trainers and dietitians might be posted to active units abroad. And we would note that it was a bad week recently for weather forecasting with the news that a Washington, D.C. lawyer blamed the area's recent snowfalls on the Rothschilds. Democratic Councilmember Trayon White Sr. told constituents that the Jewish banking family is controlling the climate to create natural disasters they can pay for to own the cities, man. White later apologized, saying he didn't realize these comments were anti-Semitic. And finally, it was an ugly week, we would say, for common sense a few weeks back with the news that a Massachusetts lawmaker is calling for, quote, the general hooker entrance, unquote, sign to be removed from a door to the state house because it is offensive to women. Democratic State Representative Michelle Dubois says that although the entrance is named to honor Civil War General Joseph Hooker, female staffers avoid it. On Twitter, Dubois explained, hashtag me too, it's not all about rape and harassment, but also women's dignity. Well, this is a complicated story. The entrance is named after General Hooker. Therefore, the entrance name is not in reference to prostitution. Except that as we understand it, during the Civil War, General Hooker, who like so many before him, got fired by President Lincoln because he was not particularly competent, at one point had his troops stationed in the nation's capital, uh, during which time they were apparently trafficking with, with the local ladies of the night, which in turn <laughs> somehow got labeled Hooker's Division. I think I've got that right. So yes, the slang Hooker does indirectly refer to the general, but are women really avoiding that door to the state house because of what its name is? Really? Really? And this does allow us, I think, to segue into a, uh, a plug for a previous uh, Radio Parallax segment we had with um, a male Washington hooker. Our interview with Henry W. Vinson about his book, Confessions of a D.C. Madam, subtitled The Politics of Sex, Lies, and Blackmail, is one we found pretty interesting. And if you didn't catch it the first time, it's available, as are so many programs, as are basically all of our programs, on our website at radioparallax.com. We're not aware of Henry W. Vincent avoiding any entrances or exits. And I hasten to add, no pun intended. And in the three minutes that we have left, I would like to cite um, an article from New Scientist. It was titled The Inequality Delusion. It's a piece by cognitive scientist Mark Sheskin, who notes that the gap between rich and poor is often said to be a defining issue of our age, to which he adds, that's odd, given that people are not actually bothered by inequality. Of course, this requires a bit of explanation. This whole science 
such as it is, uh, that's, that they're trying to develop for how to explain economics. Uh, well, we wish them well in this. They've got a long way to go. But this is an interesting piece. It notes that it's true. Eight people own as much wealth as about half the world's population. Sheskin said that's just one of many eye-watering measures of inequality. In the U.S., almost 85% of the wealth is owned by just 20% of the population. He notes that when the Pew Research Center asked people in 44 countries whether they thought the gap between rich and poor was a big problem, a majority in all 44 said it was. We have discussed things like the Gini Index, which bean counters have uh, used to try and assess that disparity between the haves and have-nots across the globe. The thrust of this article is that the battle against economic inequality isn't simple. They concluded, after studying the matter, that fighting inequality is realizing that it is not all bad. If we want to beat inequality, we must first distinguish between the bad sort and the good sort. He goes on to say that uh, the body of research he's involved with casts doubts on inequality aversion. In fact, my colleagues and I, he says, argue that there's no evidence that people are actually bothered by economic inequality. So how do you, how do you sort this out? Well, his point is that people dislike not inequality, but something with which it is confounded, economic unfairness. He notes, in a rather common-sense example, that a school that gave all students the same mark regardless of merit, or a bakery at which you work more than me but are paid the same, would be equal but not fair. And again, in a rather commonsensical manner, he points out that a scientist who develops a medicine that saves many lives, or a writer who creates a story enjoyed by millions, should have more wealth than me. They have earned it, he says. This intuition for fairness is deeply ingrained. And the point of the article is that knowing how we all think about fairness and equality and where those judgments come from, well, that's vital for properly combating unfair inequality. He notes that people in economically developed nations are often appalled by the wages and working conditions in developing countries, leading to calls for boycotts on certain products. But he points out it may be that this is a misapplication of our sense of fairness, Considering what a fair wage in, in that area is requires knowing things such as local costs and alternative available jobs. The punchline of all this, according to Mark Sheskin, cognitive scientist at Yale, there are staggering levels of inequality in the world and a wide agreement that these should be reduced. But notes, we should aspire to fair inequality, not unfair equality. Of course, I would note that in the article there is a graphic of what people in U.S. society think would be a fair distribution of income of the various fifths of society from the top to bottom. And the reality is we are a lot, we are a lot more unequal than people think we ought to be. On the other hand, it is generally recognized that if you have the ability to close out a baseball game like Dennis Eckersley could... Well, that unusual ability that you possess may just allow you to receive more than the rest of us and have that be fair. And one final segue addendum to human behavior and how societies are organized. We note that in the letters to the editor part of New Scientist, 
A reference was made to a new book by Christopher Baum titled Hierarchy in the Forest, The Evolution of Egalitarian Behavior. It explores the process by which our human ancestors rejected despotic alpha male behavior such as found in chimps and gorillas. The point is made that by successfully overthrowing the alpha males and establishing a more egalitarian ethos that has been observed in hunter-gatherer groups around the world with strong sanctions against those who try to dominate, this would have deprived the alpha males of their breeding monopoly and given everyone else a chance to breed, by which I think we probably all profited. And that about does it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax, and I am your host, your faithful host, Douglas Everett. We will see you soon, or reasonably soon. 